All right. So, out of 66 books in the Bible, uh, where um, there is one where God is never mentioned, and that's the one we're returning to uh, this morning. If you were with us last Sunday, um, we uh, we began our sermon series through the book of Esther. Uh, this book never mentions God. Um, so I thought about trying to preach an entire summer series without mentioning God. Uh, I decided the elders probably would have a problem with that uh, somewhere around week three or four. Um, before we get back to Esther, though, um, I want you to take your Bibles and open up to uh, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Um, yeah, my name's Travis. I serve as senior pastor here. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, um, you can pretty much open up to the, the middle of it, and you're going to find the book of Psalms. Um, some, Psalm 19, and just turn somewhere uh, like around verse maybe 30 or so, um, and then flip forward again to Psalm 119, verse 50, and then keep looking ahead to verse 75, and then verse 175, and you realize Psalm 19, this is a long psalm. In fact... This is the longest chapter uh, in the Bible. The, the reason is because it's an acrostic. 176 verses broken up into 22 stanzas. Each stanza represents one of the Hebrew characters in the 22-character Hebrew alphabet. And so in every one of those 22 stanzas, the verses in that stanza, all the first word begins with the fir- that letter that connects to that. And so you have it spread out all over um, the Psalm 119. Isn't that fun? Little, <laughs> little piece of Bible trivia to dazzle your friends with, an acrostic. Okay, now flip back to the book of Esther. Actually, I wanted to show you that because acrostics aren't just in Psalm 119. Actually, they are a key and repeated feature of Hebrew poetry and literature. They're all over the place. They're very, very intentional. So, when I tell you that Esther is the only book of the Bible that never mentions the name of God, that is kind of correct. Um, There's no spot that ever translates out as God or Lord. That much is certainly accurate. But there is a spot, and it falls in this morning's text, which is why I'm bringing it up to you now. There is a spot in uh, Esther where four consecutive words all begin with the Hebrew letters that transliterate into English, Y-W-H-W, which of course is Yahweh, the name of God, or in English, Lord. That happens in today's text, although you can't see it in the English. Actually, that happens a second time in the book of Esther as well. Actually, that happens a third time in the book of Esther as well. Actually, God's name spelled out as an acrostic with four consecutive Hebrew words and the first Hebrew letter in each of those words all then turning into Yahweh. That happens four times over the course of this book. It's intentional. It's purposeful. It's one more very subtle yet brilliant way that the author is quietly conveying to the reader 
God's behind this. God is all woven through this. Behind the, the literal text is the presence of God. And that's important to remember. Because you know, the, the, the key theme of our series, we've said, is, is that um, the unseen God is the God behind the scene. The unseen God is the God behind the scene. You see that over and over as we move through Esther, and sometimes you really have to look for this unseen God, because oftentimes God is most present when he seems most absent. That's important to remember as we now dive back into a drunken party. You will recall uh, the king Ahasuerus, uh, Greek name Xerxes, fancied himself the god king of Persia. He threw a 180-day summit slash party. Um, It was for military. It was for political officials. They rotated in and out over those six months period. The the reason was to kind of drum up support for this uh, military campaign uh, that was in the not-too-distant future against Greece. Um, And then at the end of that 180-day summit-slash-party, King Xerxes then threw a seven-day party, except this one was for everybody. It was from the very highest to the very lowest. And so now, at the end of this 187-day kegger (laughs) on the seventh day of this second feast, now things get weird. (laughs) And that's where we'll pick it up. Esther chapter 1, beginning at verse 10. Hear now the very word of the Lord. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs, At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. 
So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king. (laughs) I bet it did. And the princes. And the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. And let's, let's push it one more verse here. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had, debate, had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and had what had been decreed against her. <laughs> or we could just listen to last week's sermon. Was <laughs> she trying to catch up with me? <laughs> recall that ever happening before. That's amazing. (laughs) Kind of had an out-of-body experience there. (laughs) All right. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. A few times. All right. uh, We got three headers uh, for this morning. Um, They're in the program you received at the door. First header is written in there, Emperor Gets Blitzed. The Emperor Gets Blitzed. So you'll recall uh, last Sunday's sermon began with the king in a drunken stupor, and uh, this Sunday, guess what? <laughs> He's still drunk, which I suppose uh, is exegetically correct, because it was a seven-day feast. So back up in verse 8, um, uh, we saw the edict, there is no compulsion. In other words, there is no limit on the drinking. That's what that means. Because when you think about even today, like in, in, in a royal feast, you know, the king touches his cutlery, and then everybody can eat, right? The king gives the toast, and then everybody can, can drink. But that's not how he set this one up. Here, the king went with the, um, uh, the, the much-as-you-like approach. <laughs> Feel free to drink until you can drink no more. And then in your mind's eye, I want you to hold that image and then jump forward a period of time to that last verse that we read right there at the start of chapter 2. And can you, can you picture there, chapter 2, verse 1, can, can you picture the point, it's the, the king at some point in the future, sitting down on the, the edge of his bed, squeezing his eyes shut, rubbing the bridge of his nose, and now flashing in his mind are the scenes from that party. And he's replaying the events in his head and, and thinking, you know, if someone had said to him the morning of that party, hey, king, by this time tomorrow, you will have deposed your wife, you will have banished her from your presence, and she will be as nothing to you. The king would have responded to that. Well, don't be ridiculous. But that's exactly what happened. And now, he's remembering. You know, we actually have some, some, some video footage of King Xerxes after he came to his senses. I know, it is amazing. Because <laughs> it was 2,500 years ago. But, but take a look. I woke up this morning Realized what I had done 
How many of you did I just hear singing along with that? <laughs> For those of you who are a little bit younger, uh, to, to be honest, that is not footage from the 5th century BC. It is footage from an equally strange and wondrous time known as the 70s. <laughs> also an entirely foreign culture. <clears throat> but it fits, right? It fits exactly. I lost my head and I said some things. Now comes the heartache that mourning brings. <laughs> in fact, some of us know exactly how that feels, not just in theory, but we've, we've been there. We know exactly how that feels. And in King Xerxes' case, the author makes a point to explicitly link the use of alcohol in verse 10 with the events that follow in verse 11. Listen, it's not my purpose here to give a dissertation on the uses and abuses of alcohol. <laughs> you guys know you got three pastors and uh, none of us are teetotalers. Uh, in, in my own opinion, few things are as relaxing as a David McAuliffe history book in one hand and a Guinness in the other hand. When of uh, appropriate age, of course. Wine is the principal drink mentioned in the Bible. It's commended on multiple occasions. But listen, when we move from the beverage use of alcohol to intoxication by it, not only are we violating the clear precepts of Scripture, but there's a dangerous correlation that develops between intake and output. And if I can say a word to those, again, younger in our midst, best to know and understand that at a young age and save yourself all the agony that it brings at an older age. You don't need to go any further than chapter 7, verse 7 of this exact same book. And you will read, quote, and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking. See, Xerxes has a pattern here. The author's making it explicit for us. Now, I think it would be quite naive to pretend alcohol was the only catalyst in the chapter one events that follow here. But it was a factor. It's a repeated factor in this man's life. Begg puts it best when he says this. It is quite simply a no-go area for a Christian to be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit. Let he who has ears, let him hear. Xerxes, he didn't, he didn't buy into that. He was fine giving up control of his body and his mind to other substances, which is why he ends up summoning his wife, which leads into our second point, the emperor gets denied. The emperor gets denied. Yeah, um, you got to understand, generally speaking, Persia was not a great place to be a woman. Um, women, including the queen, were property. 
Vashti's summons in verse 11, if you kept your text open there, had she heeded it, it would have led to some form of sexual humiliation. At minimum, it would have required a display of some sort, appearing in just her crown, appearing in her crown in an open robe, uh, something that is going to fill the, the, the drunken mass with lust and jealousy. That's important to the king, too. And it might have been much worse than that. See, it's a really bad combination that we see in Xerxes here. You got a massive ego. You got an inordinate interest in alcohol. You got a rotten temper. And you got absolute power. They've seen my royal palace. They've seen my royal robes. They've seen my royal throne and enjoyed my royal clothes. They've drunk my royal wine. They've come in here to dine. How else can I impress them? Ah, I'll show them who is mine. And so it's really quite the turn of events that every, everything in the world was at this man's bidding. And then in verse 12... <laughs> The girl says, no. And all of us say, yes. <laughs> See, this is funny. We're, we're supposed to think that this part is funny. If you, if you imagine that the scripture only speaks in hushed and reverent tones, then you're going to often miss the satire and the comedy that is so brilliantly woven into portions of scripture. This is written in such a way that the reader realizes the emperor has no clothes, right? Because he's got dominion from India to Ethiopia. He's thrown a banquet of, of pomp and opulence for 187 days. There's no limit to this guy's power. Nobody on the planet could doubt he's a big shot to the ends of the earth. He rules it all. Except for his wife. <laughs> I'm in control of everything. Go get the queen. Uh, uh, King, actually, she said, she's not coming. <laughs> End of verse 12. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Listen, church. It's been true in every era of history, right up to our own. Pride is as dangerous in a king as rabies in a dog. Pride is as dangerous in a king as rabies in a dog. It's been shown over and over and over down through the ages. But listen, it's not just kings. There's a moment of self-reflection here, right? Are you in a position of leadership, authority, influence? Because if I can be blunt, some of us have marriage problems for pretty much the same reason King Xerxes had a problem. You're a big shot at work. You pay people to do what you say the way that you want it done. 
And somehow, over the years, you got it in your head that that's how it should work at home, too. I got to tell you, this is such an interesting book. I planned to preach this as our summer series quite some time ago. But it is, it is becoming to me a fascinating book to preach in the Harvey Weinstein Me Too era. Have you guys thought about that yet as we've just begun it? Because on one hand, I think we, we, we may be more sympathetic to what was done to Vashti and what's going to be done to Esther than maybe we, we ever would have been. You know, in past eras, this text that we're reading today, it has been used by some as support for a hyper-traditional interpretation. Um, in other words, that Vashti was wrong for not submitting to her husband. That view was held in, in bygone eras by folks up to and including Martin Luther who was really good on justification by faith, but he didn't get it all right. I I, I trust that that few of us would take that particular interpretation today, but I don't know, there could be one or two. If there is one or two, we should grab coffee. (laughs) Like, soon. (laughs) On the other hand, it would be, it is far more common today to use this text and uh, the model of Vashti's resistance to then advance a pro-feminist ideology. And so this is probably a good moment for me to pause and remind us, try to humbly offer something of a teaching moment here, try to remind us how we approach a biblical text. Okay? Exegesis is reading out of the text what God put there. Exegesis is reading out of the text what God put there. Eisegesis is the fancy way of reading into the text what we wish was in there. Probably my favorite commentary on Esther is it's by a woman named Karen Jobes. And she says this, quote, It is not sound hermeneutics to interpret an ancient text through the lens of any modern ideology. The interpreter must respect the concerns of the author of Esther, which were indigenous to their times and culture, not ours. You guys tracking with me? In other words, what becomes of Vashti? The effect that this royal decree then has on on marriage and gender relations in the Persian Empire, none of that is further developed in the story because it's not the main point of the story. We can observe those things. We can draw inferences from them, but it's not the main point of the story. So why does the author take this little detour into the battle of the sexes? Because it's what happened. <laughs> Remember I told you? It's a historical narrative. It's not, just a, it's not just a once upon a time. It's exactly what happened. And what happens here 
sets up all that will happen down the line. How some Jewish girl named Esther ends up standing right beside the king. The author of Esther is displaying in the recording of this story the impotence of earthly power and the absolute inability of this world and this world's kings to thwart the purposes of God for God's people. That's what's being put on display here. And so we do well to remind ourselves that oftentimes God is most present when he seems most absent. His name, though not obvious, is really and truly woven into the very text, which then leads to our final point. The emperor gets blitzed. The emperor gets denied. Last one, the emperor strikes back. The emperor strikes back. I've been waiting all week to say it. What should Xerxes have done after all this? Well, it's not that complicated. He should have apologized. <laughs> Sweetheart, I'm sorry. I was drunk. I never should have been drunk. I was with the guys. I never should have been with those guys. They were all chanting, you know, get the queen, get the queen. Then they started doing the wave and I got all caught up in it. You know, Vashti, I never, I never should have put you in a position where you even had to say no to such a ludicrous request. I'm sorry. That's what Xerxes should have done. But when the ego is pricked, it can release a powerful poison. So when the hangovers faded and the, the halls were quiet, counsel was taken with these wise men who studied the times. And um, understand, these are not the wisest guys in the kingdom. That title uh, implies that these guys were, they, they were astrologers, okay? They consulted stars and other forms of uh, divination. So these seven guys who are listed out here, this is the Persian version of uh, Larry, my brother Daryl, and my other brother Daryl. <laughs> See, the, the, the Persian Empire, um, it's good to know, and uh, th- it was held together by um, this, this tangled web of, of edicts and rules and laws. It was kind of the Persian thing. You know, every empire, they got a thing. This was kind of the Persian thing. Um, in fact, there's an old-fashioned uh, idiom um, that some of you will be familiar with, that when you, when you say something, when you like, make plans for the future, and then you say, uh, but, but that's not the law of the Medes and the Persians. It's kind of like saying, yeah, but that's not set in stone. So these advisors in verse 13 and following understand they're the, they're the top men in the empire, okay? They got a seat right beside the king, and they don't want to lose their seat right beside the king. They got privilege. They got influence. So when he asks, hey, what do you guys think I should do about my Vashti problem? They respond, mm, king, what we need is more legislation, <laughs> Which is always the answer that a politician will give you every time. Spend more money, pass more laws, oftentimes both. And this is another point in the story then where it becomes intentionally funny. 
And you got to pick up on this, right? Because this character, Mamukin, he, he elevates this personal, this perceived personal affront to the king, and he escalates, it, it was confined to a palace party, and he escalates it to this, this crisis of empire-wide proportion. If you don't punish her, king, there's going to be total domestic breakdown everywhere. Another female commentator, her name's um, Adele Berlin. She interprets this man's advice as motivated by a fear of a coordinated sexual strike. <laughs> I don't know if that's right or not, but it does make me wonder. If maybe poor, poor Mamukin, do you think he was having trouble at home a little bit? He seems terrified that, that Vashti's unwillingness to be denigrated in front of a room full of drunk men is now going to be the catalyst that launches an entire women's liberation movement. And so the humor here is that Xerxes ends up publicizing throughout the entire empire what he could not resolve in his own house. Letters go out to everybody, it says, in every province, in every language. Verse 22, every man must be master in his own household. The king creates legislation to impose on others what he couldn't achieve himself. Do you, do you begin to perceive what Vashti has accomplished here? You've got this monumental king with a monumental empire and a monumental ego to go with it. And with a single word, Vashti pricked the bubble. <laughs> it's funny. It's hilarious, actually. And it's sad because <laughs> real men don't need edicts. Real men don't demand respect. They earn it. It's the Ephesians 5 analog for marriage, right? We, we have the, the, the benefit of reading our, our Bibles backwards. We have the New Testament. We read it back into the Old Testament. We understand it's one major redemptive story, and we come to Ephesians 5, and it's picturing there for us. Christ is the bridegroom, and the church is his bride. And we're, we, we learn there in Ephesians 5, a wife will desire to honor her husband because the husband will lay down his life for his wife. He'll abandon his own agenda. And so Xerxes, he reminds us of nothing if not the fact that absolute power held by deeply flawed leaders is a terrifying scenario. And so this text leaves us desperate for a king with perfect character who's worthy of absolute power. We're left at the end of chapter one craving a better king, a redeeming king. We're left with this hope that God really is most present when he seems most absent. And so as the camera begins to pan out of the text, we ask ourselves, we always should in one way or another, is Christ anywhere to be found in chapter one? 
I mean, he's behind the text, to be sure. You have the literal acrostic is even in the text. But it's more than that. See, often in the Old Testament, we find Jesus by way of comparison, right? Types, anti-types. Sometimes we find Jesus by way of comparison. Sometimes we find Jesus by way of contrast. This whole passage is set up to remind us, church, we need a better king. Xerxes sat on a throne in Susa. Jesus sits on a throne in heaven. Xerxes used his power to shame women. Jesus uses his power to elevate women. Xerxes avoided poverty. Jesus stepped into poverty. Xerxes thought he was a man become God. Jesus was God become man. Xerxes demands respect by royal decree. Christ invites respect by sacrificial love. Xerxes foolishly took wine and he turned it into sin. Jesus miraculously miraculously takes water and he turns it into wine. Xerxes commands the foreground. Jesus commands the background. Xerxes wanted to strip off his wife's robe. Jesus, according to John 13, took off his robe, knelt down, and washed the disciples' feet. This passage is written, it is designed so that we would be crying out for a king who will come not to be served, but to serve. A king who will march not to his war, but to his cross. And so we say the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven, he came and sought her to be his only bride. With his own blood, he bought her. And for her life, he died. And here we are, 2,500 years later. That Persian king, he's dead and gone. (laughs) Yet we're still singing to the risen king who reigns today with the good confidence that oftentimes when God appears most absent, (laughs) that's actually when he's most present. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shame.